When Jesus rolls away the stone from Lazarus' tomb and raises him from the dead, it foreshadows his own death and resurrection on Easter morning. But there's something else going on here, and if you blink, you might miss it. Lazarus is more than a literary plot device, more than a demonstration of the same power that would raise Jesus from the dead. Lazarus, in this story, is a real person, a man with family and friends that love him dearly. They are distraught by his untimely passing. Mary and Martha, his sisters, are beside themselves. Jesus, the first and only time that we see it, weeps at the news of Lazarus' death. Amidst this struggle between life and death, love abounds. And maybe that is the real miracle. The scripture reading today is from the book of John, chapter 11. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Death ain't got no mercy in this land. Death ain't got no in this land you come to your house won't stay long look in the bed somebody be gone death ain't got no mercy in this land death come to any family 
promised land Death come to any family in this land You come to your house, you won't stay long Look in the bed, won't your family be gone Death come to any family in this land Oh, death always be in a hurry in this land Death always come hurry in this land You come to your house you won't stay long Look in the bed your mother be gone Oh death always in a hurry in this land Death always in a hurry in this land Death ain't got no mercy in this land Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping. Teachings of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Death is an ever-present specter that hounds our steps, a stalker that waits for an opportune time. We seldom think of death as a person, some guy with a black robe and a sickle and a skull for a face. In ancient times, that kind of anthropomorphic thinking was more prevalent. The Egyptians had Osiris, the Greeks had Hades, and the plague, which killed nearly half of Europe in medieval times, gave rise to the iconic image of the Grim Reaper himself. As the old song from Blue Oyster Cult goes, not that one. Death comes sweeping down the hallway in a lady's dress. Death comes driving down the highway in his Sunday best. Death is everywhere, always has been. But we're not very good at dealing with it or talking about it in 21st century America. There are plenty of cultures that recognize dying as a natural part of the cycle of life a sacred journey, a transmigration of the soul. In America, it's treated more like an inconvenience. Employers begrudgingly allow a couple of days off of work to settle family affairs. Acquaintances oblige our grief at the funeral, but avoid us because they don't know what to say. The news cycle moves on from another mass shooting with palpable relief. We are terrified of death in this country, so we don't talk about it unless we have to, even when a pandemic claims a million lives. We're comfortable enough with statistics, and as Stalin famously said, a million deaths are a statistic, but a single death is a tragedy, and that's where folks get nervous. We aren't equipped to handle that. We have, in many ways, exchanged our mythology, our meaning, 
for raw practicality. Death is no longer a ferryman to take you across the river Styx, or a gambler that will play chess for the fate of your soul. It's a life insurance policy, a hospital bill, an expensive coffin, commodified like everything else in our society. Whoever dies with the most toys wins, the saying goes, but the emphasis is always on the toys, not on the dying. We'd rather not think too hard about that. Art can help us to process things that give us anxiety. Our mortality, for instance, that might be a song or a painting or a poem. One of my favorite explorations of life and death comes from the late 18th century when Samuel Taylor Coleridge published his famous work, Rime of the Ancient Mariner. In the poem, a crew of sailors becomes lost in the frozen north where they encounter an albatross flying out of the fog. They think it's a good omen. And sure enough, it seems to be. With its appearance, the frozen mist begins to clear and the wind fills their sails again. But one of them, the titular mariner, shoots the bird for sport with his crossbow. And the crew, aghast at what he has done, hangs the dead bird around his neck, the guilt of it dragging him down like a stone. The wind dies again, leaving them stranded upon a desolate sea. And while they've escaped the ice, the noonday sun now beats upon them with terrible heat. Having spent their provisions, they must endure horrible hunger and thirst, their parched lips aching for something to soothe them, their ship going nowhere. I'm plenty sure uh, that folks in the midst of heat waves without air conditioning could relate. Day after day, day after day, we struck nor breath nor motion, as idle as a painted ship on a painted ocean. The crew languishes, waiting for death to arrive, but to their surprise, death arrives literally, the Grim Reaper piloting a ship of his own. And he's not alone. This specter is accompanied by a ghoulish woman. Are those her ribs through which the sun did peer as through a grate? And is that woman all her crew? Is that death? And are there two? Is death that woman's mate? Her lips were red, her looks were free, her locks were yellow as gold. Her skin was white as leprosy. The nightmare, life in death, was she, who fixed man's blood with cold. These twin specters, death and life, roll dice for the fate of the crew. And the reaper claims them all, save for the mariner. He belongs to her now, to life, cursed to live forever upon that damned ghost ship while his crew drops dead around him. Coleridge posits death and life as companions, lovers, perhaps. Nothing to really differentiate them, save for a roll of the dice, a game of chance. And both of them, in this poem, are equally horrific. If anything, the mariner suffers more than the dead, being cursed with immortality. But then Coleridge 
was not especially fond of his own life. He was a starving artist and an opium addict, resented by his wife and children. He gave you the impression, one historian wrote, of a life that had been full of sufferings, a life heavy laden, half vanquished, still swimming painfully in seas of manifold physical and emotional torment. Coleridge is the mariner, saddled with the heavy albatross of depression and addiction, clinging to life while longing for death. He's tired of being alive, but he's also afraid to die. In the mariner's words, an orphan's curse would drag to hell a spirit from on high, but oh, more horrible than that is the curse in a dead man's eye. Seven days, seven nights, I saw that curse, and yet I could not die. As I said, art can help us process our anxiety. And in the mariner's struggle between life and death, Samuel Taylor Coleridge dealt with his. We've recently acquired a painting, our second piece by the artist John Swanson, the first being a depiction of the miracle of the loaves and fishes. The new work is hanging right over there, uh, but we'll put it up on the screen so you can get a good look at it. Though the digital image doesn't entirely do it justice, I encourage you to take a closer look after the service at the real thing. This magnificent serigraph called Take Away the Stone depicts the resurrection of Lazarus, which we just heard in our scriptures. Four days in the grave, Jesus' command, he walks out of his own tomb after the stone has been taken away. The image is bursting with color and vitality. The mood is jubilant. The rich colors defy the gray, washed-out tones that we tend to associate with the grave. And while Lazarus himself is a little bit of a morbid specter wrapped in burial linens from head to toe, Jesus embraces him wholeheartedly, wrapping Lazarus in his arms. In the words of the artist, the tomb is not located in a desolate place. It is surrounded by numerous figures carrying the things of life, candlelight, flowers, music, tears, and prayer. The picture contains many elements, but has a central focus, he goes on to say. It seeks to present with simple clarity the reality of death in the midst of life and the miracle of life in the midst of death. The reality of death in the midst of life and the miracle of life in the midst of death. Swanson, much like his fellow artist Coleridge, reminds us that life and death are companions locked in an eternal embrace. But unlike the poet who depicts them both as horrible, Swanson portrays them as being equally beautiful. You see, we have a tendency to believe that life is good and death is bad. And in a culture where you can be shot at the grocery store as casually as Coleridge's albatross, that's probably a fair assumption to make. But it's not always true. Lord, how many bedsides have I stood by? How many hands have I 
been privileged to hold, how many rooms filled with grieving families as they said goodbye. That's not an easy place to be, but it's a sacred place because it is filled to bursting with love. Concentrated love, like, like orange juice concentrate in a frozen can, so sweet that it hurts. It's a cup you don't want to drink, painful to bear, but it is more beautiful than the most awe-inspiring sunset or a sky full of stars. When the stone is taken away, Lazarus can see everyone that cares about him, everyone that loves him, all of the lives that he's touched. And for Lazarus, at least, whether he lives in or dies is perhaps less significant than the fact that he is loved. Lazarus is surrounded by friends and family and embraced by Jesus who wraps his arms around this body wrapped in burial linens, this walking specter of death. It's a portrait of life and death, love and grief together, companions. For grief is nothing if not a kind of love and you cannot have one without the other. Grief is the cost loving deeply. As another poet, Tennyson, once wrote, let love clasp grief, lest both be drowned. Love is what makes life worth living, and death worth dying. The mariner kills the albatross in a casual act of violence. Like too many in our society, he would rather play with his crossbow than feel anything too deeply. It isn't until he finds himself trapped on a ghost ship for eternity that he experiences a spiritual awakening. And alone, over the edge of the boat, he spies other creatures beneath the waves. Within the shadow of the ship, I watched their rich attire, blue, glossy green, and velvet black. They coiled and swam and every track was a flash, golden fire. Oh, happy living things, no tongue their beauty might declare. A spring of love gushed from my heart, and I blessed them unaware. The selfsame moment I could pray, and from my neck so free the albatross fell off and sank like lead into the sea. By this act of love, this experience, of love, the mariner finds redemption. That kind of love for one another, that's what's really in short, short supply these days, isn't it? Yes, grain and meat and lumber and gasoline are getting harder to come by, but love and community are what's really lacking. And maybe that's why young men like the mariner pick up their proverbial crossbows and shoot the first beautiful thing they see. But love cures the mariner's fear. Filled to bursting, the sails catch the wind at last and carry his vessel back to the harbor, bringing his long and fateful journey to an end. Maybe the church is a little bit like that, too. Uh, a vessel with holy wind in its sails. A community where love abounds. Something increasingly rare in our lonely world. Friends, no one lives forever. Everything Everyone that lives must one day die, returning to the shores 
that we all came from. We all must face the reality of death in the midst of life. There's no hiding from it, much as we'd like to. Embracing Lazarus, Jesus calls us to embrace the reality of death in the midst of life, and the miracle of life in the midst of death, which is really the miracle of love. Filled with love, when your time comes, may you also find your way home. As the mariner recounts, returning to the place whence he came, we drifted o'er the harbor, and I with sobs did pray, oh, let me be awake, my God, let me sleep always. Amen.